Well, today in our series, The Big Questions of Life, we're going to deal with the big question. Do miracles happen on demand? And um, the idea of miracles is always on our minds. You know, when we pray, we want the Lord to give us some kind of a breakthrough. We want something special. And so do miracles happen on demand? This question comes up all the time in the Christian faith, and we should talk about it today. Actually, we know that the Lord is always propping us up for various things. Uh, On the left side of this slide, you see a picture of uh, people rehearsing for Peter Pan. And you'll see that they're being held up by cables so that Wendy and her brothers can fly. And uh, you see people on the far wall holding the cables and they pull the cables up and down. And that's how the people in the Peter Pan play fly. And on the right hand side, you can see what that looks like. That's sort of like what the Lord does for us. The Lord is always holding us up and we couldn't do anything without him, which is what we read in John chapter 15, verse five. Without me, you could do nothing. Anytime we fly in life, it's because the Lord is propping us up. Otherwise, it would never work, right? So, yeah, uh, miracles do happen all the time in the sense that the Lord is always at work in our lives uh, doing wonderful things. But if we require God to do the kind of miracle where he is overturning the depravity of people or interfering with the laws of nature, if you require that, then here's what's probably going to happen in your Christian life. You're going to have false hope that you are uh, eventually going to be disappointed with. You'll be disappointed with God. You'll have feelings of betrayal. Like, I thought the Lord and I had a deal that he was going to work something out for me special, and then he didn't come through, and so I'm upset about that. You feel like you've been betrayed, and there's some sort of social contract between you and God. I was going to give him my best. He was going to give me his best, and he didn't. You'll feel like that social contract has been broken. And maybe you'll even be so discouraged that you'll defect from the Christian faith. And that would be, of course, catastrophic. All right, so today we're going to look at three big ideas. The first big idea is that miracles do happen today. Yes, they do. We believe in that. The second big idea is that we should be really wary of the danger of participating somehow in deceptive theatrics or in demon-energized miracles. And then the third big idea, we're going to talk about why miracles don't happen more often. Why not more dramatic answers to prayer and signs and wonders? Why so few? And so we're going to address all of that today. Uh, I know you can't read most of this, but this is my short list of favorite answers to prayer. There are 57 favorite answers to prayer on this list. And and I'm not going to deal with any of these in detail. But just to give you an idea, miracles do happen, right? Uh, So, for example, you see number eight there. This is when David Arnold, who is a Christian Missionary Alliance missionary kid, his parents are on the field. Uh, Dad is away doing some kind of ministry far away, um, and I think they're in New Guinea. He is uh, with his sister listening to the fellow missionaries talk about what happens when their mom dies because she's so sick with typhoid fever. And they're saying, you know, Dad's away, Mom is going to die In the next few hours, what should we do with the Arnold kids? So David and his sister, in the middle of the night, sneak over to their mom's bedside and pray earnestly that mom will not die of typhoid fever. Next morning, she gets up perfectly fine. 
David and his sister are convinced that God answered their prayers miraculously. There's no way she should have been able to do that. Uh, number nine, this is Ryrie's friend's angel. Uh, this guy is supposed to be speaking at a conference. He's so tired. He said, Lord, I wish that I had somebody to talk to. I'm trying to fall asleep. There's a hitchhiker. He picks up the hitchhiker. The hitchhiker gets in the car. Turns out they know all these same people. Do you know so-and-so? Oh, yeah, he's a great guy. Do you know him? Yes, yes, yes. They stop at a diner. They have uh, coffee. And the stranger says, uh, you know, this is where I, I will leave you. And uh, so the guy drives off. He gets just, you know, a moment down the road. He says, oh, man, I meant to get that guy's information. Goes back to the diner and, and says, did you see what direction my friend went? And the guy in the diner says, what friend? He said, you know, I was just sitting there. There's two cups of coffee on the table. You know, one for me, one for him. He said, yeah, there never was a friend there. I saw you talking to somebody. I just thought you were talking to yourself. You know, there was nobody with you. Like, oh. Uh, you see number 40. Well, number 13 is great. Let me not skip that. John G. Patton's well, missionary in the islands of New Hebrides, kind of over by Australia. Um, he decides they need drinking water because the rainwater that's being caught is controlled by the witch doctor. So all the people are beholden to the witch doctor. And even the Christians now uh, have to grovel with the witch doctor to get water. He doesn't like this. And so John G. Patton says, I'm going to try to dig a well. And he's just guessing where on this island there could be water. So he digs a well and the people there had never seen water from a well. It's always, you know, catching the rainwater. And so he, he chooses a place, he digs a well, and after and nobody would help him because they said, this is silly, you, you can't get water from the ground. And so he digs a well, and eventually there is water coming up from the ground. They think it's amazing, everybody is so happy to have a well dug. And in all the islands of New Hebrides, for the next 50 or 100 years, people kept trying to dig wells in other places, and that was the only place that there was ever water. Crazy, right? Um, Chrissy's prayer meeting, uh, because... She is a a wayward young woman. She leaves her family. Her dad's a pastor in New York. She leaves her family. She's throwing off the Christian faith. And they have a big prayer meeting for her at the church. And uh, next morning, she comes around the house and she's just crying. Her dad's just getting out of the shower in the morning. Like, what's Chrissy doing here? She's just crying. And she says, what happened Wednesday night? And he says, what are you talking about? She said, I just knew that I had to come back to the Lord and it was right at the time everybody was praying. You know, that's a great answer to prayer. Miraculous. Spurgeon's atheist uh, friend. Spurgeon is having his morning Bible reading time. He's reading in the book of Joel. He comes to chapter 3, verse 3. And there's a mention of the word girl. Uh, These people were selling a girl into slavery. And he said, you know, how many times do we even find the word girl in the King James Bible. And so he's just curious. He looks it up in his concordance. One time, just once, Joel 3, 3, girl. It's plural in another case, but for a singular girl, Joel 3, 3, that's it. He says, ha, who would think? Girl, one time, Joel 3, 3. He's walking down the road. He has an atheist uh, friend that he decides he would like to call on and see if the guy will listen to the gospel today. Knocks on the atheist door, and the atheist is upset that Spurgeon is bothering him. And um, Spurgeon just says, I I just want to talk to you about the gospel. And so the atheist says, all right, I'll let you come in if you can answer one question. How many times does the word girl occur in scripture? Spurgeon says, once. Atheist says, where? He says, 
Joel 3, 3. I said, how did you know that? He said, not two hours ago in my Bible reading, I was just curious about that and I looked it up. And so the atheist became a Christian. Great answers to prayer. Does the Lord do miracles today? Of course he does. We certainly believe this, but we meticulously avoid two things. These are deceptive theatrics and demon-energized miracles because both of those are a real issue. We're going to talk about that, the danger of deceptive theatrics and demon-energized miracles. You know what you're never going to find in the New Testament? You're never going to find these things. There's no such thing as anybody ever being slain in the spirit. There's no such thing as supernatural laughter. There's no such thing as facial tics, spasms, and paralysis called by the, caused by the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as animal noises being caused by the Holy Spirit. And there's no such thing as gibberish speaking. That's never going to occur in the New Testament. It's just not there. We should be properly afraid to speak for God. You don't like it when people put words in your mouth, right? Well, the Lord doesn't like it when people put words in his mouth. He's perfectly capable of saying what he wants to say. And if you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, if you're going to put words in God's mouth, you better not be wrong. Why do we say you better not be wrong? By the way, we're dealing here with things that are called prophecies in Scripture or revelatory tongue speaking or dreams and visions, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, discerning of spirits, all of these things. If you're going to say the Lord told me, then you cannot be wrong. In Deuteronomy 18.20, I want you to see this. The Bible has a zero tolerance policy for error. If you're going to speak for God, you better not be wrong. So in Deuteronomy 18.20, the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, thus saith the Lord, the Lord told me to tell you, if you dare to do that, which I have not commanded him to speak, that prophet shall die. See, you better not be wrong. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not follow nor come to pass. So this prophet says a certain thing is going to be this way. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, you are going to get better from your cancer. Thus saith the Lord, you are going to marry Johnny. Whatever. When the prophet says that, if it does not come to pass, then that prophet will die. He should be executed. It's a capital crime. Zero tolerance policy for error. That's what the Bible requires. Interestingly, the same sort of thing is found in Deuteronomy 13, but this time switched around. Notice what this one says. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder, so he does a a true miracle, he gives you a sign or a wonder, and this time it does come to pass. See, the other one said, and if it doesn't happen, he has to die. This one says, it does happen. So he's a dreamer. He tells you that there's going to be a sign or a wonder. Thus says the Lord, you are going to be healed from this cancer. And sure enough, you are healed. Thus says the Lord, you're going to marry Johnny. And sure enough, you marry Johnny. All right, it does come to pass. But he also spoke to you saying, well, let's go after other gods. So in other words, the miracle is true, but the gospel is false. He says, oh, and that guy also should be put to death. So in one case, it didn't come to pass, and you kill him. In another case, it did come to pass, and you still kill him. So here's the question. Would the Christians who claim to speak for God today be in favor of letting us execute them if they are ever wrong in any matter when they're speaking for God? They say, no, I don't think they'd be willing to do that. I also don't think they'd be willing to do that. But 
as you see in the last line of this slide, if you love the Bible, you'd be willing to do that. I love the Bible so much that if I ever say, this is what God says, and I'm wrong, then sure, uh, I, I would rather die than do that. Now, the Lord is not going to let us execute anybody for being wrong, right? And we don't want to. What we're talking about is preserving the integrity of prophecy, visions, revelations, as the Bible preserves them. In the Toronto Blessing, which was uh, famous in the 1990s, uh, one of the leaders, and this was, this was like the quintessential signs and wonders movement of our generation. One of the leaders says, I believe the test of a prophet is not whether his word comes to pass. Now, you just saw in the Old Testament that that is exactly the test of a prophet. But this guy who is a prophet says, no, I don't want that to be the test. Naturally, you would not. I believe the test of a prophet is not whether his word comes to pass. It's his lifestyle. It's the character of the individual. That is how you test a prophet. He says, I figure if I hit two-thirds prophecies that turn out to be correct, I'm doing pretty good. And as a Bible believer, I'd say, I figure if you hit two-thirds, you're dead. That's the way it should be if you love the Bible, right? Uh, one of the most famous prophets uh, here in the United States in history has been William Branham. He's one of the founders of the whole revival movement, had a huge reputation for performing miracles. And he says that an angel visited him one time. This is what the angel said. Fear not, God has sent you to take a gift of divine healing. If you can get the people to believe you, Nothing shall stand before your prayer, not even cancer. Well, this fellow denied the Trinity. He predicted that the rapture and the end of the world would occur before 1977. He allowed his followers to claim that he was virgin born and that when he died, which he did in 1965, he'd be raised back to life immediately after dying. And he actually could not heal himself after he had a car accident, so he died. That is not a good representation of a Bible prophet. Asa Allen, again, one of the most famous of all American prophets in history. One of the first TV evangelists. He had 43 stations and he led coast to coast revival meetings with a tent that would hold more than 20,000 people traveling all over the country. He's a really big deal. He says, God said to me, thou shalt decree a thing and it shall be established. He said, I believe I can command God to perform a miracle for you financially. And yet this fellow was divorced. He was addicted to alcohol, not being able to heal himself. He died at the age of 59 from acute liver failure. And the liver failure was from drinking too much alcohol. And all around him in his room where he died were bottles of liquor and pills. And so this is a representation of somebody who had one of the greatest uh, reputations in the United States for being a prophet of God. You can see the problem. Again, going back to one of the Toronto blessing prophets, we had this report. One of our prophets in front of 800 peers falsely accused a young man of having a problem with pornography. The young man began to weep because the truth was that he was not into pornography. We had to go back to his church, apologize to his whole church. It was a horrible mess. But you know what? I don't know any place where it's going to be 100% right. There's going to be stumbling blocks in every ministry that the Holy Spirit is really responsible for. Like, great, we're going to blame the Holy Spirit on this, right? I mean, this is a disaster. The Bible has a zero-tolerance policy for error if you're going to claim to be a prophet and speak for God. There's the issue of Christian integrity. In John 4, 24, Jesus told the woman at the well, God is a spirit, 
And they that worship him must worship him in spirit. as not just outward appearances. You know, be what you seem to be. You're going to worship in spirit and in truth. In truth meaning no compromise, no hypocritical theatrics. It's got to be true. Absolute integrity. It's all about integrity. And anytime a person disobeys the Lord, you realize he's not anymore on God's side. He's on the devil's side. And when you disobey the Lord and you join the devil's rebellion in disobedience, now you are in a prime atmosphere for demon-energized miracles, true supernatural events that are caused by evil spirits. And so remember that because we believe that miracles happen today, that doesn't mean we ever let down our zero tolerance for error when somebody speaks for God. And we never want miracles that are demon-energized, even if it's very exciting and impressive. So we are told in 1 Corinthians 14, 39, to forbid not speaking in tongues. We're not going to forbid it. And we're not going to forbid any miracles. No Bible believer would ever do that. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to demand obedience. Because obedience is never optional for a person of integrity, a Christian of integrity. We're going to demand obedience. And perfection in prophecy is a matter of obedience. You can never be wrong if you're speaking for God. And the four commands that forbid tongue speaking in certain situations are not optional. They all have to be observed. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 27, if anybody speaks in tongues, that would be by two or at most by three. Not everybody's going to be doing this in a service. If that's the way you do it at your church, your church is wrong and you have to change. The second rule is also in verse 27. Two or three at the most and one at a time. Each one taking his turn. Say, no, this was two people speaking in tongues at once or a whole congregation speaking in tongues at once. Your congregation is wrong. You are out of step with Scripture. You're disobeying the Lord and you have to change. The third rule, chapter 14, verse 28. If there's no interpreter, keep silence. Nobody's interpreting what's going on here. Then you better stop because you were told to stop. And obedience is not optional. If you decide not to obey, then you're in the devil's rebellion. And that's the atmosphere you never want to be in. And lastly, the women are not allowed to do it. So if the women are speaking in tongues, according to 1 Corinthians 14, you're wrong. You can't do that. These rules are not optional. They are to be obeyed. And so I hope you will obey them. Integrity with Scripture is not optional. You have to love the Bible. You have to believe the Bible. You have to obey the Bible. And you have to do it in integrity. We have to conclude because 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says... By one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Don't walk up to a Christian and say, are you baptized with the Holy Spirit? That's a conversion thing that happens for every single Christian at the moment of his salvation. You don't need to ask him if he's baptized in the Holy Spirit because the scripture says, by one spirit are we all baptized. You see, that's not optional. That's Bible. It's uh, a conclusion that you must come to, that tongues are not gibberish and Tongues are really not meant for everybody. Not gibberish, we can see, because in Acts 2, for example, these are real languages. You can see that not everybody is supposed to speak in tongues because 1 Corinthians 12, 30 says, rhetorical question, does everybody speak in tongues? And the answer is supposed to be, no. 
So why would you expect everybody to speak in tongues? If you expect everybody to speak in tongues, you're disagreeing with Scripture and you have to change. That's what it means to believe the Bible, to have integrity about such things. And it reminds us that real Christians, even the best of Christians, might get sick and stay sick. If somebody tells you that's not right, then that person is disagreeing with the Bible. If you're going to believe the Bible in integrity, you're going to have to come to the conclusion that the best of Christians can get sick and stay sick. Happens all the time. In Scripture, we have 2 Timothy 4.20. The Apostle Paul saying, Trophimus, have I left at my leadum sick. Paul was an apostle, the greatest of the apostles, and a wonderful healer. The question we have, Paul, why would you leave him sick? What do you just mean? You don't leave him sick, you make him better. But he didn't make him better. Why? Because Trophimus, one of the best of Paul's fellow servants, partners in the gospel, was sick and there's nothing Paul could do about it. Nothing Paul could do about it. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 has the Apostle Paul saying there's a thorn in the flesh. That's an illness. And he besought the Lord three times that this thing would be removed from him, depart from him. And the Lord says, nope, I'm not going to do that. In verse 9, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. Infirmities are sicknesses. I'm happy about my sickness. The best of Christians can get sick and stay sick. That's Bible. Another example of that comes from 1 Timothy 5.23, where the Apostle Paul tells his young friend Timothy, who has stomach problems, and of course, there were parasites in the water all the time in those old places. Even now, if you were going to take a trip to Europe, um, people would say, don't drink the water. It's not good. It wasn't good for Timothy. It upset his stomach all the time. So Paul says, from now on, you have to mix some wine in your water because the alcohol kills the parasites. Put some wine in your water. Drink no longer water straight, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and because you're so sick all the time. Timothy was one of the best Christians who's ever lived, and he was sick all the time. Christians, the best of Christians, can get sick and stay sick. That's Bible. If somebody tells you different, that somebody is wrong. On the authority of Scripture, these three individuals, individuals got sick and stayed sick. Integrity. Catherine Coleman, well-known faith healer, couldn't cure herself of heart disease that took her life, and she struggled with that for 20 years. Healer Hobart Freeman, he had symptoms of polio. So he's a famous healer, and he couldn't heal himself from his polio symptoms. Ruth Carter Stapleton, famous healer, couldn't heal herself when she got cancer. John Wimber, most recent famous healer, couldn't heal himself of heart disease. Eventually he had a triple bypass surgery and later on he had a brain hemorrhage that took his life and he couldn't heal himself. So if somebody says that Christians can't get sick and stay sick, they are wrong in Scripture and they're even wrong according to our own history of experience. Integrity. Five Christian medical doctors, so these are Christians, five Christian medical doctors followed John Wimber around a healer again, when he's having his crusades in England. And these Christian medical doctors looked over the cases and said, we saw no change that suggested any healing of organic or physical disease. 
these are Christians. They said, no, it wasn't happening. No, no healings took place there that could be documented with any sort of organic illness. John Wimber said he had high success rates for healing headaches and backaches, but he said of the 200 Down syndrome victims he had prayed for over the years, none of them got better. Does that ring true to you? Why would a guy be able to heal headaches but not Down syndrome? You think Jesus could heal Down syndrome? Well, why can't he? Something's wrong here. And we're dealing with matters of integrity. Sometimes it's not just integrity. Sometimes there are deceptive theatrics. So, for example, one man went to a Catherine Coleman healing event and um, she touched him. Immediately, the man fell backwards into the hands of a designated catcher. Later, he confessed that his experience had nothing to do with the power of God. Peer pressure caused him to fake his fall. And the cameraman chuckled and said, oh, it's common for people to fake it. Ah, see, that's a problem. Deceptive theatrics. One well-known Toronto blessing prophet told the story of Sarah Lilliman. It says, Sarah was like a vegetable, totally incapacitated, paralyzed and blind. Her friend, out under the power, has a vision. Jesus said, go pray for Sarah, your friend. I'm going to heal her. He says that, and everybody applauds. They cheer. How wonderful. And then the prophet says, that girl, totally incapacitated, paralyzed and blind, after two and a half hours of soaking prayer, got up seeing. Yay, miracle. Except researchers found later that Sarah Lilliman was never paralyzed. That's not true. She was not like a vegetable. She's never paralyzed. But that she is still, as she always was before, legally blind. She didn't get up seeing. That's false. It's theatrics, deceptive theatrics, and there's no tolerance for that in a world of truth that Christians love. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between deceptive theatrics and demon-energized happenings. Which is it? Maybe a combination of both, right? For more than two days, one of the female prophets during the Toronto blessing fell repeatedly, was hysterical with laughter. They sometimes called it the laughter revival. Hysterical with laughter and unable to walk in a straight line. She told Phil Donahue when she went on TV that for four hours she had rolled around under chairs at church. The very next day she began to toss hot, greasy fish at parishioners during a very serious dinner meeting. So what is this? Theatrics? Crazy behavior that is inspired by demons? What's going on here? And maybe we'll never know some of those things. These, we understand, are more than just deceptive theatrics. This is demon-energized occurrences. Tibetan monks, according to anthropologist George Jennings, so he's just a scientist, right? He goes and he's watching the Tibetan monks in their rituals. Tibetan monks in their ritual dances spoke in English that they had never studied, spoke in English quotations from Shakespeare and with profanity like drunken sailors, and they also could speak in German and French, and they had never studied those languages. So these are real languages they never studied, and they're able to do this under the influence of demonic spirits. One scholar who took peyote while attending a ceremony with North American Indians said he heard in the Fox Indian language what he knew was being sung in the Winnebago Indian language. In other words, the words left the mouth of the singers in Winnebago, but they entered his ears in Fox. Real language, 
in paganism, it's a miracle, demonic in its origin. One young man, David Spur, said, When I was a Mormon, I used to speak in tongues. I thought I was receiving revelations from God. Now that I've received Christ as my Savior, I'm convinced that these experiences did not come from God. I think they may have come from the devil or demons. So just because you have a miracle doesn't mean it's a miracle from God. All the pagan religions have miracles. That's why people believe in pagan religions. We all speak in tongues, whether we're Christians or pagans. Everybody has tongue speaking. The question is, is your power coming from the Lord or coming from evil spirits? Carla was a Christian Bible college student. She became a Christian, and then she decided to attend a charismatic Lutheran uh, meeting. And they prayed over her with laying out of hands so that she would receive the Holy Spirit. She fell down unconscious, and they say that while she was unconscious, uh, she spoke in tongues beautifully, uh, the witnesses say. The trouble is, after that meeting, when she was alone in her room at night, uh, bad things were happening to her, invisible things having to do with... uh, immoral sexual things and she's all by herself so she goes to dr fred dickinson in chicago one of my teachers in bible college days and she says you have to help me in counseling dr dickinson uh hears the girl's voice change into a guttural voice and obviously her personality has changed and in that voice and with that personality Uh, the individual demon in her is threatening to hurt Dr. Dickinson. Dr. Dickinson says, are you the spirit that came in at that church? The demon says yes, and he's irritated at this whole thing. She wanted a real spiritual experience with God through speaking in tongues. The counselor says, why did you come in? The demon says, it was an opportunity for me. The counselor says, but she's renounced all that now, right? The demon said yes. So the counselor says, on that basis, I command you to leave her body. Eventually, uh, that was the case. And as far as we know, ever after, she wrote a glowing testimony sometime after that none of these bad things were happening to her at night anymore. She was no longer afraid, and she's doing quite well. Ronald Knox was describing shaker services. This was a long time ago. You've heard of uh, shaker furniture, you know, the design of shaker furniture. Um, In 1803, this is what he was observing with the shaker uh, commune. So when attacked by the jerks, the victims of enthusiasm sometimes leaped like frogs and exhibited every grotesque and hideous contortion of the face and limbs, growling, snapping the teeth, and barking like dogs. These last were particularly gifted in prophecies, trances, and dreams. That's just raw paganism under the banner of Christianity. Those are demon-energized miracles. Again, a leading... Toronto Blessing Prophet said, One night I was preaching on hell when suddenly laughter just hit the whole place. The more I told people what hell was like, the more they laughed. Everyone ended up on the floor laughing. They thought that that was revival. I would suggest those are demon-energized happenings. Mick Brown, who is not a Christian, a journalist, traveled to Toronto to see what was going on. In that service, he says, Perhaps it was the heat or the feverish intoxication coursing through the air. But I could feel myself growing giddy. I didn't even see the prophet's hand coming as it arced through the air and touched me gently. Hardly at all. 
on the forehead. I could feel a palpable shock running through me. Then I was falling backwards as if my legs had been kicked away from underneath me. I hit the floor. I swear this is the truth. Laughing like a train. You know, the laughter revival. He says, I am not now a Christian and I was not a Christian at the time I did that. Why don't more miracles happen? I mean, more wonderful answers to prayer, more signs and wonders. Why not more? Biblically, we have some reasons for that. Scripture foretells that there's going to be a major increase in signs and wonders during what we call the tribulation, which comes after the church age. This indicates that our current church age is going to be less miraculous than the age to come. You understand that, right? If there's going to be an avalanche of prophecies and visions and signs and wonders after this age, then that would indicate that that age has more charismatic phenomena than our current age. You understand that, right? And we know that that cannot be false. Acts 2.17 is when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And I want you to notice how the signs and wonders are associated with the cosmic disturbances that you know are part of the tribulation in the book of Revelation, for example. Peter says it should come to pass in the last days. We're talking about the end times, right? In the last days, says God, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. On my servants and on my handmaids, I'll pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So you see all of the phenomena, right? We have dreams and visions and signs and wonders. All right, in verse 19, And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs of the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon into blood, the day of the Lord. So what you're seeing here is that the cosmic disturbances of the end times come at the time of this avalanche of charismatic phenomena. Those two go together. You are not seeing today the cosmic disturbances the sun turned to darkness, the moon into blood, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. You're not seeing that today? And you know what else you're not seeing today? This avalanche of miracle signs and wonders because those are for the tribulation, not for now. That explains so much of this. In the Christian faith, the working of miracles is also directly related to answered prayer. And we're going to find that these great answers to prayer are also associated with the end times. So, for example, we're reading in the Bible, the New Testament, about these statements Jesus made, promising, we would say perhaps even over-promising answers to prayer. Listen to what these sound like when you see them in rapid succession. Matthew eighteen nineteen: if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, that's a big deal, anything that they ask. Matthew 21, 22. All things, whatever you shall ask. All things. That's a pretty big deal. Whatever you ask. In John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. John 14, 14 again. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. John 15, 16. Whatever you shall ask the Father in my name, he'll do it. Once again in John 16, 23. Whatever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you shall receive. We see these promises for answered prayer. We think, sounds to me like that's over-promising. I mean, that is not any Christian's experience. No Christian has experienced this. Anything you ask, it will be done. No Christian has ever experienced this, including, by the way, the Apostle Paul. So why the over-promising of answers to prayer? Important observation. 
Jesus, when he said those things, was overtly preparing his first century audience for the soon arrival of what we call the end times, the messianic age. If Jesus had returned, and he might have, in a way he should have, if Jesus had returned seven years after the resurrection, then all of these over-promises would make perfect sense. Here's what that looks like in a uh, graphic. Imagine this simple round table here. This is the way the Old Testament speaks about the Messianic age. Once it starts, once Messiah comes, he's going to conquer all of our enemies and bring in lasting peace for a thousand years, what we today call the millennium. That's the way that the uh, Bible reads. The crucified Messiah will come very shortly and set up a wonderful paradise. That's the way it reads. But then we find later there's this change. It's like putting a leaf in the round table, so now the table is an oval table. So we have the beginning of Messiah's career, right? He's born in a manger. He does his miracles. He dies. That's the beginning. And then you have this long period of time between when Jesus rose from death and his return. It's been like 2,000 years. That's like a leaf in the table. You insert this leaf, spread the table apart, put the leaf in. That's 2,000 years of what we call the church age, which is Gentile dominated. It's where you live right now. And it's not like the Messianic age when Jesus was here on earth. And it's not like the tribulation, the the end times Messianic age. It's this in-between time. And that's where you live. There are 25 references here. I know you can't see them, but I just wanted you to get the feel. Was it really possible that Jesus' first century audience could expect Jesus to return soon? And if you can read any of the um, highlighted things there in yellow... The return of Jesus is said to be at hand and shortly. And the time is short. It's at hand. A little while. It draws near. It's at hand. It is the last time. Shortly. At hand. Quickly. 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 Uh, One more time. Shortly. Quickly. Quickly. At hand. Quickly. 25 times. We kept hearing in Scripture that this was going to happen really, really soon. Now, if Jesus had come back quickly, let's say seven years after the resurrection... All of those oversized promises about prayer would make perfect sense. So the most striking verses in the whole Bible on prayer are all about Jesus preparing his first century audience for the end times when his reign would come. And all the most striking verses in the Bible on the subject of signs and wonders are also about the messianic end times, what we call the tribulation and millennium. And so we find that we are not in that time. We're in the in-between time. And that's why there's a difference in the number of miracles we see. Here's what's going to happen if we get this wrong. Some years back, I had a friend whose son was in the hospital. He actually went to the same Bible college I went to. And he was in the hospital uh, with a terrible cancer and he was dying. He got involved with a faith healer. And the faith leader said what he really needs to do is just trust the Lord uh, and trust the Lord that he has already been healed. So he began to tell all of his friends and relatives, actually, I'm already healed. Well, his wife wrote a journal. She said, I just bowed my head silently at one critical point. I fervently prayed, oh, God, I don't know whether to believe the physical evidence that my husband's dying or the spiritual Could you please give me a sign through the blood pressure reading as to whether or not he has been healed? The blood pressure had been very low for a long time. Then it showed 135 over 85. 
She says, I got goosebumps. And I told myself that this was a specific answer to prayer. My heart began at that moment to believe. So really, he is healed. It's just taking a while for it to become evident. On December 16th that year, one more time, she wrote all of her loved ones. She said, we spent the afternoon reviewing all the verses. And she called them rhemas. They are verses that the Lord has given you as promises. We spent the afternoon reviewing all the verses God has given us for our journey. My prayer is that God will still continue to give confirming signs of his handiwork. Praise God with us for the miracle that he is performing for his glory. It's all happening. One month later, this man was dead. That's just so heart-wrenching. That's just so awful. She and he had been victims of bad doctrine. One more time. Lovely newlywed couple who did a six-week mission trip in Papua New Guinea um, with New Tribes Mission, which is a great mission organization. They came back, and in the fall, October, he, Isaac, was diagnosed with a terminal cancer in the brain, brain tumor. And uh, his wife, they'd only been married such a short time, his wife began posting things for friends and loved ones. November 17, he was diagnosed in October, right? So this is one month later, November 17. We are constantly praying that it is God's will for a miracle. One month later, December 27. If God intervenes because her husband is clearly uh, declining. If God intervenes, hallelujah. If not, and Isaac goes, then I will continue to pray and believe that God can and will still intervene and raise him from the dead. That is my faith and trust in him. He is so powerful and mighty. Please don't discourage me. Jesus requires all faith and belief in order to work. That's just so sad. So now you're not even allowed to tell her that she has to brace for the possibility of no miracle. December 28th, 8 o'clock at night. Isaac is not responding at all and cannot be woken up. We continue to keep trusting in him, God, never doubting or losing faith in his miracle that is coming. According to the next post, Isaac died one minute later. But we can't give up, she said. The next day, so Isaac has been away now uh, with the Lord in heaven for a whole day. She says, Isaac died at 8 p.m. yesterday evening. There are no words. Yes, of course, I'm still praying for a miracle. God can raise people from the dead, and I'm putting my faith in him and in him alone, despite others who have given up. Please pray believing with me. It is a good feeling that Isaac is no longer in pain battling. The pain I feel, though, is killing me. That's just so sad. So here's our conclusion. God is always supernaturally propping us up. Remember like the Peter Pan characters who are held up by cables. God is always holding us up. In that sense, miracles happen all the time. And sometimes God really does overturn the depravity of oppressors and overturn the laws of nature. Sometimes he really does. And we're so happy for that. But if we require God, we demand that God do these things, give us our miracle or else then here's what's likely to happen. We might resort to deceptive theatrics or to be content with demon-energized actual miracles or we might just become disappointed with God, disappointed when God is so wise, so super intelligent and so super loving and he doesn't deserve 
have us disappointed in. But we had the right doctrine. We would understand that there's no reason to be disappointed with God. 